We're going to look at true worship part three. And the fact that this is Resurrection Sunday is not lost on me. I found through the years uh, in sequential preaching that the Lord knows what he's doing in terms of the timing. We don't necessarily have to preach a special resurrection message. Let's simply see where we are providentially. But there are some things that I want to weave in with regard to uh, the gospel itself, the crucifixion and the resurrection. So that's the intention this morning as we look at another character who was with Jesus during that time and bring her alongside of the Samaritan woman. But let's pick up this morning. We're going to be just limiting ourselves to verse 25 and 26. Now, before we take a look at the text, I want to uh, remind you of verse 4. Verse 4 says that Jesus had to go to Samaria. And that, that intrigued me for a while. He had to go. Well, he had to go because obviously it was the decretive will of God that he go because he's there. But more than that, what is it? And, I, and then I realized after ha- having gone through, we've gone through the book of Acts, having gone through Acts and remembering the role that Samaria plays in the entirety of the gospel, and, a, and a, with particular uh, emphasis on the witness that the apostles are called to regarding Samaria. So he had to go to Samaria, clearly, to plant the gospel seed, you could say. When we looked at Book of Acts going forward, I want to look at a couple of those verses with you this morning, uh, particularly chapter 8, if you want to flip there and put your finger there. Uh, we see Jesus giving the witness to them. So if you fast forward from where we are with the woman at the well, this is the beginning of his ministry, or relatively so. It would be some, some time later, maybe a, a couple of years later, when we see the events unfold uh, with the crucifixion a few years later, and, and so on. But the call is to the whole world. We know that the call is comes from uh, chapter 1 of the book of Acts 1.8, where he said just before his ascension, you recall in verse 8, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judah, and where? Samaria. That had to have gotten their attention, wouldn't you say? Since we've been kind of focused earlier in his ministry, what the Jews thought of the Samaritans, and particularly of the woman that he's talking to at the well, they did not go through Samaria if they could all help it. They would go to the east, go around the uh, Jordan River and go up, or they would go over to the coast and go up the coast road there, rather than go to Samaria. The Jews had a... um, the rabbis particularly had a, an expression that if you pass a Samaritan man on the road, uh, you're unclean if his shadow crosses yours. It's better for you to take the ditch. That's how they felt about Samaria. So he's making this clear at the book of Acts, and you recall that. So he's making it clear there, but then you fast forward from there to chapter 8 of Acts. That's right after G, uh, Stephen is martyred. He's stoned to death. You remember that. And it leads into chapter 8, where Saul, who would become Paul is at his conversion, is still breathing out threats and angrily persecuting the believers. But in verse 1, it says that uh, they scattered throughout the regions of Judea and where? Samaria. I just wanted you to put all these things together this morning. So now we see why he had to go to Samaria. He's planting the seed there. What, how, does he get, how does he get his otherwise fearful disciples to go up into Samaria? Those, those racists, if you will, who despise the Samaritans, a mixed race. How does he get them up there? Do you remember? It's in chapter 8. He scatters them. Why? Because they just saw Stephen stone for the gospel's sake. And they see this man, Saul, breathing hot on their heels. They took off. Where did they go? Well, it says where they went, Judah and Samaria. So it's like he's got to light a fire under them to get them to go up there. And you look at verse 4 and 5. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them Christ. So now... Connect that with what he's doing with the woman 
at the well. That is the seedling. That's the tender, tender planting of the gospel by the Messiah himself. Isn't that remarkable? So now they're scattered up there. But I would suggest to you, as we're going to find out in John chapter 4, that she has a pretty strong witness that affects the townspeople of Sychar. So the gospel's already up there. Philip takes off, his ministry explodes. And if you look, the city of Samaria is uh, about seven or eight miles from Mount Gerizim or Sychar. So surely by then they had heard about the influence, the impact of the Samaritan woman. It's also interesting that you don't hear about her anymore. It probably could be the case that that's where her ministry was. Those are her people. She was staying there to say, the Messiah has come, right? She's excited to have met him. She's excited about a man who told her everything about herself, all the nasty, immoral things about her life that opened up her heart to receive the gospel. Just really remarkable. In 14 to 16 of Acts 8, You see, now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. So see things progressively moving along here? So now they're going to get the Holy Spirit. If you remember that part of Acts when we were there a few years back, that they had to verify that they had the legit gospel up there. It took an apostle to do that in the early days. And so they received the gospel. So, for he had not yet, verse 16, fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of Jesus. You remember in Acts 19, they're running into John, the Baptist's disciples who hadn't even heard, hadn't even met Jesus yet, didn't know, so they didn't have the Holy Spirit. Paul lets them know, and they receive the Holy Spirit. So this is a historical book. So these things happened in this particular progression. But to start at Acts chapter 1 is not doing yourself a full service. What you ought to do is start at John 4, because that's where it all began. That's where it all began. So we see the woman at the well. I'm not going to repeat any of that review. You know where we are. He exposes the things of her heart. She suspects that he's a prophet. He must be a prophet. I know that when Messiah comes, he's going to tell us all things, right? That's the verse we're going to be on this morning as we move forward. And I thought, what? All along in this study of this particular section with the Samaritan woman, I'm thinking, so how do we categorize her? We love to categorize things, right? Because we're human, we like to think in boxes. It's more convenient. Is she saved? Is she not saved? And, and we can see that God does things in a progression, doesn't he? In his time, he fulfills all things. That's what the book of Acts is all about. That's why it's foolish to jump back to the, all the things that are going on in the book of Acts and think that that's current for us today. That's nonsense. This is in the economy of the sovereign God who declares the end from the beginning, right? So I was thinking about that, and I remember when Paul was at Mars Hill. Remember that? In chapter 17, when we were there, verse of Acts, verse 27 to 28, he says something interesting. Now, he's speaking about the heathen. Remember, he's about to tell them about the, the, who the unknown God is that they have a, uh, an, a statue for. And he says this, listen, speaking about the heathen, this would be the category that thus far the Samaritan woman's in, that they should seek God, which she does, in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. And then he quotes the the poet Epimenides, right? Because in him we what? Live and move and have our being. Their appeal, now back to your evangel, appeal to them by what you know every person has innately. They know that there's a God. No matter how much they deny it, they know that and that he will judge. They know those two things because they have a conscience, right? So what's going on here? What is Paul suggesting? Well, she's blind. She can't see. What do blind people do in order to get, get along? 
they feel. And one pearl at a time, one pearl of truth at a time, he's drawing her by feel. It's the only place that uses this word in this way, suggesting that you feel your way. This Greek word means to feel after, to handle. I can't see, but I'm drawn to someone who's saying things that make sense to me, and he's drawing me in. That's what's happening with her. That's what we're to do. That's our evangel. That's our approach. It means to verify by contact. They blind people verify things. This is, the, oh, this is my pulpit and so on by, by contact. She has, he knew that he had to make contact with her. Of course he had to go to Samaria. She's blind. She won't found it, find it on Mount Gerizim. She needs to meet the Messiah himself. And one truth at a time, because she knows that much, right? There's so much we know innately. I know that when Messiah comes, he will speak and tell us all things. That's what he's doing. We do the same thing, or we're called to. So masterful is he. Because he told her in verse 22, remember, you worship what you do not want. I get it. You're blind. I understand. There's a thing called the fall. You're a sinner. You don't see. So I'm here to call to you. I'm here to call to you that you might see. Because you seek me. You're just way off on the wrong track. All they believed in was the Pentateuch. They only believed in the first five books of the Bible, just like the Sadducees, the Samaritans that worshipped at Mount Gerizim. They didn't believe in the prophets or the Psalms or any of the rest of it. So they're lost. They're as lost as the Sadducee was. But how masterful. His wisdom in evangelism. What have we learned so far that he has revealed to her? And these sort of pearls of truth as he's gliding, guiding her along like a, like a knotted rope, one truth at a time. He's, he's pulling her along. She's getting closer to him. That he's a gracious Jewish man that speaks to her and treats her with gentleness, care, and respect. Will that get a heathen woman's attention, especially one like her that's been through the ringer? She's been through a lot. She's been ostracized, stigmatized, outcast. She's alone. She must be lonely. She's got to be depressed. She's got to have anxiety. She must be, have fear. She's got to be jaded. You know, like Pilate was, what is truth? You know what? I've given up on that. I've given up on love, she could say. What's that? That's nothing but a cruel joke. It doesn't exist. That's her. Well, it does exist. As a matter of fact, the man standing in front of her or sitting is love himself. And he's there to love her and show her the way. He offered her a gift, remember, of living water that will quench her thirst eternally. He, he knows private, very personal things about her that open up her heart. Remember, it's always necessary to point that out. You can't leave that part out of your gospel presentation, folks. Otherwise, they won't know why they really need Jesus. Tell me about yourself. Are you perfect? <clears throat> They'll give you the things that they've done that they hope will accrue to grading on a curve. <laughs> God doesn't do it that way, does he? I'm better than the next guy. No, he said... Go get your husband. In some circles in our present culture, that's, that's mean, right? It's mean to say truthful things like that. Who are you to t say, go get your husband? When you, especially when you know that I don't have one, that I'm living with a man. You're going to be like the townspeople, aren't you? That's where this is going, isn't it? So you talk to somebody. No. He's gentle. He's kind. But he doesn't withhold the truth because he wants her heart opened up and it has long since been closed. That thing is slammed shut. It's got scar tissue over it. He has to be truthful with her though, doesn't he? So see how he's leading her one step at a time to the cross. He speaks the truth about her, leading her to perceive he's a prophet. Soon true worship will be conducted. He corrects her bad theology. Well, you know, 
We worship here at Mount Gerizim, and I know the Jews worship down there in Jerusalem. You know what? That, that, that's not who God is. God is spirit. He's everywhere. And there's going to be a time where you worship him, and all true worshipers of God will worship him in spirit and in truth. Well, where's the temple going to be? In our hearts. So verse 25, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. She knew the Messiah was coming. How did she know? Because she just got through saying, because when he comes, he's going to tell us all. She trusts that when the Messiah actually comes, and she already believes that. It's like the thief on the cross. There wasn't a whole laundry list of things required for him to be saved, was there? Look, this man has done nothing wrong. We're getting what we deserve. Bingo. Lord, Lord, he knows who he is. That's, it doesn't take a whole lot. Recognize him. You have to see him. But the whole heart has to be open to be able to see him and recognize who he is. He's going to tell us all things. So when the truth comes, that's what it's meant to do. She had a better view than, of the Messiah than the typical Jew did. What were they looking for? a military guy, conquering king that would come and slay the Romans who aren't giving them their best life now. She believed that Messiah was a, would be omniscient, speaking and teaching truth. And then this. I who speak to you am he. Never in the four gospels is there such a declaration made. This is a self-declaration of the Messiah. What a wonderful dispensation of grace that he would just tell her that. I, the one who am speaking to you, am. There is no pronoun in the Greek. Take out the speaking part. I am. I am is speaking to you. I've come for you. I mean, how personal, how loving, how gracious, how kind does this have to get? She gets to hear this. Well, that's an indictment on the religious leadership, isn't it? Why isn't he declaring that to Caiaphas? Well, he does later on, doesn't he? I have that text for you. In Mark fourteen sixty-one to 64, again, the high priest asked him, now we're at his trial. Are you the Christ? Here's how pious I am. I'm about to use an expression that's used nowhere else in the Bible it, so that I don't say the name Yahweh. I'm going to say this. Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Who's asking? What? Jesus said what? Two words. Ego am I. I am. Ooh. You can feel the heat and the blowback, right? I am. And then he gives them a bit of eschatology on top of it, as if they're not upset enough. They're, they're chomping at the bit. They're grinding their teeth. They've got saliva draining down onto their beards. Their eyes are, are pinholes that are bright red. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. That he offered this astonishing self-declaration of his messiahship to this immoral Samaritan woman? By the way, the rabbis had no female disciples. I don't know if you knew that. Jewish rabbis. It's all men. He ushers in the most stunning movement of equality between men and women. 
You don't have to go to any further than the witness of Jesus Christ to gain your feminist position. He's with a Samaritan woman, but not just anyone. One who's had five husbands and now is living with a man that she doesn't even bother to marry anymore. Maybe he doesn't want to marry her because he's like, you've been passed down a few times. No, thanks. I'll live with you. And you know what that arrangement's all about. So that remark cost him his life. I am. But this is way earlier with the Samaritan woman at the well. There's nobody else around. Don't you think he'd wait till there's at least a crowd? <laughs> I got quite a declaration here. One. One. Female. Samaritan. Immoral woman. What is he telling us? What does this say? Well, I'll tell you this, at least for my sake, it gives me hope, yeah? I hope you find hope in that. And if not, you will when we introduce the next character. You will. I guarantee it. So like all true Old Testament saints, she's got a strong faith that the Messiah will come. And when he comes, he'll be omniscient and he will tell us the truth. He's going to know all things and he will tell the truth in everything that he says. And there he is. I who speak to you am he. So I believe that on this demonstration of that faith, I believe she's saved here. It's like the man on the cross. Why? Because she's seeing him now. He's making this declaration of great truth. See how simple, how simple the revelation of this truth is and see how profound it is to those who are even the lowest among us. The off-scouring. Searching. To the searching, he says, I am. To the thirsty, he says, I am. To the hungry, he says, I am. To the despised, he says, I am. To the outcast, he says, I am. To the immoral, he says, I am. To the guilty, he says, I am. To the broken, he says, I am. I stopped writing them down at that point for the sake of time. Do you see he's looking for? It's not the healthy that need a physician. It's the sick. But you have to know you're sick. And you've got to confess that you're sick. And you have to say, I need you. And, and be, have a searching heart. That was her. What does it take to put a human, a fallen human, a prideful, arrogant, fallen human being through before they'll finally drop to their knees and say, enough. I need you. I need you. What, what does it take? For her, it took a lot. For me, it took a lot. But there's no greater motivation to worship. We're talking about true worship. There's no greater motivation for that than the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So I want to introduce another character to you. During the latter portion of his ministry, as I mentioned, another remarkable woman that sought to worship God emerges on the scene, and her name is Mary Magdalene. Mistakenly thought a number of things. Mistakenly thought that she was a prostitute. There's nothing in the text that uh, proclaims that. She has major distinctions in Scripture, though. So Mary's mentioned 12 times in all four Gospels. That's more than some of those disciples got as far as billing, right? She shows up. Why? Because she's there. Why? Because she knows who he is and she knows what she needs. And it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. I'm going to follow you. So she has a shared hope with the Samaritan woman, this Mary Magdalene. They both have a dark past, don't they? The Samaritan woman, because of her mixed race, her gender, the fact that she was historically immoral, and the fact that she was confused in her 
theology with regard to worship. Mary Magdalene? What's her dark past? Oh, not much. Jesus just said her, she was a demoniac. That Jesus loosed her from seven demon possession. Now, I want you to think about that for a minute. Having one demon caused quite a scene, didn't it? In your understanding of when Jesus came along to set them free of such thing. I have some other descriptions for you that will help you. But first of all, uh, Magdalene is not her surname. That's not her last name. She comes from Magdala. Magdala is about two, three miles north of Tiberias, if you're familiar with that northwest side of the uh, Sea of Galilee. It's about uh, four to five miles south of Capernaum to, to get you there. But the reason I draw that to your attention is because it was a hotbed of demon activity. There's a lot of demonic activity that went down, went on in, in Magdala. So that's her name. They refer to her as Magdalene. You're Mary Magdalene. So d demoniacs were often fierce, and this will resonate with your understanding from Scripture. They're often fierce. They're many times they're driven insane. They're not making any sense. They're violent, and they're teetering on insanity if not fully invested. They they also engage some of them in violent self mutilation. Like the man with the sun who would throw himself into the fire and then into the water. And there's those who dash themselves on the rocks to deliberately uh, bludgeon their bodies. Or they could manifest a whole host of really nasty infirmities. Really, they could get very, very sick having a demon in them. But I, I want to cite another author. So you really get the picture here. As we go forward, this woman, you need to understand her. Seven demons. Here's what, how one writer described demon possession. Demon possession involves bondage to an evil spirit. Real, personal, fallen spirit creatures that indwell the individual. In every case, demon possession is portrayed as an affliction. Not a sin, per se. That isn't a sin that they're possessed by a demon, okay? They were always pro portrayed as tormented people. They were all miserable, sorrowful, lonely, heartsick, forlorn, and pitiable creatures. You can see why she probably had a, some conversations when she, they arrived in heaven together, her and the Samaritan woman, right? Most of them were regarded as outcasts and pariahs by polite society. Typically, they're alone, except for the father who had the son. That's a good dad, isn't it? Hanging with his son when he's possessed in this way. So most were regarded as outcasts and pariahs by polite society. Scripture invariably presents them to us as victims with utterly ruined utterly ruined lives. That's the demoniac. They're alone. They're despised. People don't want to be around them. Kind of like the leper, except worse, because they do violent things. So no doubt Mary Magdalene was suffering from very similar things that the Samaritan Woman suffered depression, anxiety, unhappy to have unhappiness, outcast, out, ostracized, as I was naming those earlier, loneliness, self-loathing, for sure, right? She hates herself. She carries shame and fear. You can see these two as you juxtapose them together in your understanding of what they suffer. Although entirely different scenarios socially. They suffer a lot of the same spiritual, physical, emotional maladies given the situation they find themselves in providentially. But listen to these distinctions. I really enjoy juxtaposing these two women as I'm going through the scriptures back and forth. Here's the distinction. The Samaritan woman, as I mentioned earlier, has the honorable distinction of being the very first Samaritan to meet and speak with Jesus in person. That's really quite amazing. 
Mary Magdalene holds the distinction of being the very first person to arrive at the empty tomb. It was Mary Magdalene who ran back to tell the disciples about it was the Samaritan woman, rather, who ran back to Sychar to tell the townspeople about the arrival of Messiah, and Mary Magdalene who ran back to tell the disciples about the departure from the tomb. The Samaritan woman was the first to hear Jesus declare his Messiahship directly to her alone. Mary Magdalene, as we'll see in the text I've, I've got for you this morning, had the unparalleled honor to being the first to see the post-resurrected Christ and to hear his voice call her name. So let's look at this, because this has got a little bit of a history. That is, this, this traveling ministry Jesus had in Galilee the text describes many women were there with him. Now, remember what the rabbis thought of that. Remember what uh, a good Jewish family would think of that, having been taught under those rabbis, those teachers. In Luke 8, 1-3, Jesus went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him. Twelve men... And also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. And here's her first mention. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. And Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna. And it says many others who provided them for them out of their means. They did this on their own dime. They underwrote this Galilean ministry. They were fearless because they follow him all the way to the cross. They followed him, Mark fifteen forty one. All the way from Galilee to Jerusalem. They followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Matthew twenty-seven fifty-five to 56, there were many women at the cross looking on from a distance. Why? Well, they probably got elbowed out by the Roman soldiers and other people like that, townspeople. It didn't matter. They were going to be there, even if they had to be there and stand at a distance, I guarantee, at least in, in my, from my perspective, that it wasn't out of fear. Not when you see the role that they play. Looking on from a distance, many women who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among them was Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and Mary the mother of the sons of Zebedee. There's the moms. Where's the sons? This loving, compassionate, committed group of ladies follow him not only all the way through his Galilean ministry, but they also spend their own money to minister to him, to care for him. That reminds me of a lot of the godly ladies in this church. Taking care of things. They're going to be there. Fearless when it comes to what's right and someone that they love. They follow him. They continue to follow him even after his arrest. They follow him all the way to the cross, as we see in Scripture. Matthew 28 is an important section. 2 verse 1 says, Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, who's there? Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. Mark 16, 1 to 4 puts it this way. We get a little more information here. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices. By the way, they knew where the tomb was because they followed Joseph of Arimathea. It's his tomb, right? Together with who? Who was with him? What's that? Nicodemus. Two members of the what? Sanhedrin. That got, were saved. 
when the sun and early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb and they were saying to one another, well, it's, it's a small group of women, two or three women. And they're saying and looking up, they were saying, wait, first of all, they said, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw what? That the stone had been rolled away. And then Matthew, back to Matthew section in 28 again, he alone gives us this bit of information from verse 2 to 7. And behold, there was a great earthquake. So he gives us a description of what happened. Behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He's not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell the disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. And you've heard this before, I'm sure. He didn't roll the stone back to let Jesus out. Finish the rest. He rolled the stone back to let people in. Why? Because he wants to just impress him with what he did? He wants to comfort them. Just exactly what I said needs to happen, happen. Don't worry for me. Don't fret over me. He knew how much, how upset they had to be to see him treated the way he was. Can you imagine what he looked like? See, Mary Magdalene, I think, can identify with how he looked. She probably looked similar. Seven demons? Who knows what she looked like? Matthew 28, 8 to 10. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy. They ran to tell the disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. (laughs) Greetings? Wow. Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and did what? Worshipped him. Why? Because people that see God have no other choice. They fall down and they what? Worship him. That's right. Before this time, they couldn't see him. That's why Jesus is at the well. He had to go to Samaria so that she could feel her way in the sincerity of her heart because she's seeking God and she's waiting for the Messiah, but she can't see him yet. See, now we understand the resulting worship and why these people fell down as they did in many, many other places. We've looked at some before in the past. He worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will what? They will see me. Why would he put that in? Well, if they go to, you know, why not? I'll meet with them there or, you know, Tell them I want them to go to Galilee. And why does he say the rest? They're going to see me. They will see me in a post-resurrected state. And only Peter, James, and John were able to see on the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew 17. They will see me and they will be comforted. They will see me and they will know. They will see me and they will worship So like Mark, John's account begins with Mary Magdalene arriving at the tomb early to find that the stone had been rolled away. But John skips all of the angelic appearances. Remember, we talked about this at the beginning, setting up this fourth gospel, saying he didn't find it necessary to repeat something that had been adequately reported by the synoptics, by the three gospels. So he skips all of the angelic start, uh, stuff. In verse 2, he says of chapter 20, she says, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb. This is Mary. And we do not know 
where they have laid him. Verse 6 and 7 of John 20. At that point, John outruns Peter. So this is her telling them about the, the Lord, that he's not there. She doesn't get it yet. She doesn't get it for quite a little while now. She still doesn't get it. Where did they take him? Think of what he did for her. Think of how much he means to her. I want to know where he is. Absolutely fearless. You're going to be identified with him in public at his crucifixion. You're going to go to his tomb. You're going to follow two men from the Sanhedrin. You, you don't even know who they are. She, they, they wouldn't, she wouldn't know whether or not they're going to do something. They just followed him fearlessly so they would know where the tomb is. Amazing. Amazing. John outruns Peter to the tomb, but Peter is the one who enters. John got a little weak in the knees, I would suggest, at that point. Peter didn't care. He's going to boldly go in. John looked in the tomb and, quote, saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, folded up in a place by itself. So the great grave cloths are there. The face piece, the, the, the face cloth is there. Who would unwrap the dead body of Jesus if they meant subterfuge, if they meant something clandestine? Let's, let's steal the body. Who would, who would take his wrappings off? But here's the kicker that Jesus took the time to fold up the face cloth. What sort of Lord is this? What sort of Lord is this? That makes it, in my mind, undeniable. Who's going to fold that up? And set it there. He loves. He loves those who follow him. He loves his disciples the men and the women. He loves Mary. Just like he loved the Samaritan woman well before her and many other women that followed him wherever he went fearlessly. Absolutely amazing. So Mary was in the unique experience of meeting the resurrected Christ while weeping alone outside the tomb. John Chapter 20, John chapter 20, looking at verse 11 to 18. I want you to hear this. After all she's been through, here's Mary. She doesn't understand, and she's weeping. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look in the tomb, and she saw two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't know that it was Jesus. Verse 15, Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Here's that penetrating question again he used with his mother at the wedding at Cana. Whom are you seeking? What are you looking for? Because if you're a sincere seeking, you will seeker, you will find. You will see. Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She, tur she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father. A new relationship is born because of something he said at the end of his time on the cross. What was it? 
It is finished. It is finished. So go tell my brothers. Now they're his brothers. I am ascending to your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. That's the whole point. I have seen him. I've seen the Lord and that he said these things to her. So this is an amazing moment, really, with Mary. What a distinction that she has of being the first one to the tomb and the first one to tell the disciples and the first one to see him in his post-resurrected state and the first one to hear him call her name. John 10, 3-4 says of Jesus, He calls his own sheep by name and they know his voice. That's what we're witnessing here. When he calls your name and you know it, it's him. Jesus said to her in verse 17, Do not cling to me, for I have not ascended to the Father. Verse 18, Mary Magdalene went out and announced, I have seen the Lord. So seeing Jesus is seeing God. Those who see God worship Him. Later on, He tells, of course, the disciples to meet Him in Galilee. They meet Him on the mountain in Matthew 28, 16 and 17. The eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. So worship results when the mind has been opened and Jesus is revealed as the true Son of God. That's the principle. Like the men on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, 31, their eyes were opened and they recognized him. Or the disciples later on in uh, Luke twenty four forty five. then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. That's what he's doing with the woman at the well, with the Samaritan woman. That's what we're to do, we, to present ourselves as instruments in the Redeemer's hands, to open up their hearts that they might see the Messiah that we so love and adore, that they might too. That's the point. James Montgomery Boyce, wrote, to worship God, we must know who God is. But we cannot know who God is unless God first chooses to reveal himself to us. God has done this in the Bible, which is why the Bible and the teaching of the Bible need to be central in our worship, end quote. That's why we are a Bible church, so that we might see him so that we might worship him in spirit and in truth. Luke 24, 50 to 52, Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven, and they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. With great joy. To finish our passage before we close verse 27 through 30 in John 4 and we'll pick up after that next time verse 27 just then so he had just said to her I who speak to you am he then the disciples show up just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek? In other words, to her. Why are you bothering him? Nobody said a word. Or why are you talking with her? You know, rebuking the Lord, which Peter seems to be fond to do. <laughs> Nobody said a word. Why? Why? Because this Greek expression is in the emphatic. So the thinking is that they came back 
right at the point at which he said to her, I who speak to you am he. I think that would make them at least quiet. A rare moment for them. Verse 28. So the woman left her jar, water jar. That's it, man. She's on fire now. Here she goes. Where's she going? You know where she's going. She's going into town. I can go back into town now. It doesn't matter anymore. I'm as fearless as the, as the Mary Magdalene. I'm going to go right into town and say, you know what? He's here. The Messiah has come. Come see a man who's told me everything about myself. Every private, every nasty little thing. He opened me up and I'm rejoicing because he's the Messiah. He came just to do that, to heal all of those things, to give me forgiveness, the promise of eternal life, a water, a living water that never, never ends. I would suggest she's running. She left her water jar, went away into town and said to the people, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of town. And we're coming to him. And that, my friends, is the cliffhanger for next time. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much. What a glorious day it is. Thank you for this beautiful weather, sunrise. Oh, those, those glorious songs you've appointed for us to sing. So powerful, Lord. Your word, so powerful. Oh, be at work in us, oh Lord. We pray that you would be with us in spirit and in truth. Lord, show us, open up our hearts. Show us areas that are not right, that are wrong. Show us areas that need attention, your attention, your healing. We thank you for what you did. Thank you, oh Lord. not only forgiving of your life as we celebrated last week, but that you are risen from the dead and you are alive. And because of that, so are we. May every person within the sound of this message from your word receive it as it is, the very words of the living God speaking to them even now. And so may they believe. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.